Hi, and welcome to On Course, the podcast from Echoing Green that explores social entrepreneurship and the pieces of people's lives that they tend to leave out of their bios. Echoing Green is a premier global investor in new leaders who are boldly working to change the world, providing fellowships, community, seed stage funding, and strategic support at that critical stage where they're just trying to get off the ground. My name is Eric Dawson. I'm a father, husband, social entrepreneur, storyteller, and I have the distinct honor of serving as a chaplain for Equine Green. I, along with my colleagues, support fellows on their spiritual and emotional well-being as they mediate between who they often feel they need to be publicly with how they often feel privately. I'm a fraud. I'm not good enough. I don't know what I'm doing. On Course is about the journey that these leaders take from the moment they decide to act, to create, to change. I'm happy today to share my conversation with Antoinette Carroll. Antoinette is the founder, president, and CEO of Creative Reaction Lab, a nonprofit educating and deploying young people to challenge racial and health inequalities impacting their communities. Creative Reaction Lab's equity-centered community design is a unique creative problem-solving process grounded in humility, integrating both history and healing practices that challenges existing power dynamics and reimagines community. Antoinette and Creative Reaction Lab are building a youth-led, community-centered movement of a new type of civil leader. Antoinette, it's, it's such a pleasure to, to have this conversation with you. you know, what I admire most about, about you and your work is that at your heart, you're a designer, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you're, you're a designer, you, you create, you build. So I'd love to start by having you take us back to your childhood. You know, what were those key elements that, that shaped you? You know, were products of our lived experience? How did growing up impact you um, and, and impact your approach to work? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm really excited to have a conversation with you, Eric, because, you know, you're one of my favorite people. Um, so I, growing up, I grew up in... Some people would call it poverty. I honestly didn't think I was impoverished when I was younger. Uh, you know, I had a loving family. Um, I was lucky enough for what I call having three different parents, if you want to say that's what it was, because I was raised by my grandparents, but I also had my mother and father was still around. And then I also had my aunt and uncle. So I really wasn't able to get in trouble too much because <laughs> of having too many people around. Um, but I, I always had that love. Um, and, you know, when I was growing up, it in my family, there was always this push around not only academics, but also creativity and creative thought uh, to the point where we used to have even living room art sessions. And um, I look at myself when I reflect back on childhood, I always said I was a DIY kid. I was the one that was always looking at how do we, you know, create jewelry? How do I create a, a a sketch of uh, at that time it was a naked woman in a garden. I don't know why my grandmother kept showing me that, but, yeah. <laughs> but that's what she had us doing. Um, or, you know, the easy bake oven um, experience, even though it wasn't so that I could cook because I don't cook, but it was more so just making. Um, and I think that has continued to show up in my life. Um, this idea of creativity and the possibility of um creating something that doesn't exist. Uh, but then also, again, going back, growing up in technically poverty, I've had to have an experience of really thinking through 
what was it like growing up where everyone was either a housekeeper or um, they worked in affluent white individuals' homes or they worked in restaurants? Um, we were pretty much the family that was always behind the counter at Burger King. My first job was at Burger King. Mm. My, I mean, my first legal job. Yeah. <laughs> I, I used to work at a, a um, beauty salon as well, like cleaning up the floors when I was younger. But, you know, you got paid cash then. But, you know, I worked at Burger King and then I worked at White Castles and then I went back to Burger King. And that became that that really was a staple in my family of that's what we did. You either clean the banks, you clean someone home or you worked in restaurants. And I ended up being the one to break that cycle and show the possibility again, the possibilities of what um, career could actually look like, what purpose could look like. And uh, that was an interesting journey for me. And it's also been an interesting journey for my family, seeing uh, that there's more than just um, hospitality industry, but also you can pursue your hopes and dreams and find success in that. Uh, my first legal job was Burger King, too. Um, I, I, I didn't last very long. Um, <laughs> so you've chosen a path which was one that was not visible to you while you were growing up. How did that happen? How did how did you create this vision for yourself without role models around you pointing the way? Actually, I think it was the opposite of that. It actually was the path of the role models is where I initially started. Uh, when I was in high school, um, I was, I would say, lucky enough where the education system uh, catered their teachings to my learning styles because, you know, we can unpack that <laughs> all the, all the way we can. Uh, and so I was one of those students that had great grades, which meant that um, a lot of teachers wanted to bring me under their wing. You know, I had the teacher that was all around about science and biology and she was a black woman and really was interested in how do we diversify the field. And ultimately at the beginning of my college career, the science teacher won. Uh, I started as a biology major with the intention of being a biotechnologist and studying the human genome. I had a 4.0. I had a prestigious internship um, in a bio, bio um, chemistry lab uh, my freshman year. I had everything they pretty much tell you that you're supposed to have to be successful. And I realized that I wasn't happy. It wasn't something that um, I enjoyed doing. It was just something I was good at. And so I, I realized at that point in my life that just because you're good at something doesn't mean it's something that you have to pursue. You have to really think about how do you center joy and happiness um, in in the work that you're doing? Because honestly, we spend more time at work than we spend at home. <laughs> so if you're not happy at work, you know, then I don't know how you're going to be happy, really, in my opinion, in life a lot of times. Um, and so my sophomore year is when I really started to explore on my own what my future could be uh, and not just what my mentors wanted me to do because that was their dream. And so I had to go down this journey of really figuring out what what do I enjoy? And I honestly kept going back to those living room art sessions with my grandmother and my grandparents. And that's when I started to pursue design. Uh, and at that time it was graphic design and really 
exploring a world that I had never heard of. I I'd never heard of design. Um, I honestly had never even thought about um, websites being by design or the chairs you're in, or I, I'd never like put those things together, which now I've come to realize that um, part of it is because it, it is more of an exclusive field. It's expensive to be in, just to be very frank. Um, but then also design to me is like an invisible disruptor. Like you design is everything and everywhere. And um, if you haven't been privileged, quote unquote, to be in those spaces to really see the power of design, um, in many cases, you become more of just a consumer versus a producer. And so I've started at that time, I started to want to want to really explore what does being a producer look like. And that's kind of where my career has been going since then. I want to, I want to pull something out that you just said, you know, design is an invisible disruptor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everything is design, right? I mean, the mics that we're using, the, what people are listening to their, their, um, AirPods, yet we often understand designing these very narrow and often very elitist terms, right? It's, it's graduate degrees, it's furniture, it's clothes. <laughs> yeah. How, how do you think of design and, and how has that impacted what you've built? Yeah. Um, <laughs> going back to my sophomore year, I remember being in my first graphic design class and my teacher saying that I cannot give you the definition of design but I can tell you that the Mac is the Bible. And, you know, naive at that time, I'm like running to the school bookstore, spending thousands of dollars on a freaking computer that I honestly didn't even need. I had to have this uh, exploratory moment in my life of really questioning why couldn't my teacher tell me what design meant and how can I actually help not only myself, but also the young leaders that I work with to really have a firm understanding of the impact that it can have. And so I've now come up with the definition also in partnership with IBM because IBM had a definition of design in the 1960s saying that it is the intent behind an outcome. I've since expanded that definition to say that design is the intent and unintentional impact behind an outcome because intent is not enough. I need us to start being more accountable of the impact that we're having in communities. But when you really think about outcomes, you start to realize that it's not just the the beds we're sleeping in. It's not just the ads that we see on TV, but it's also the systems that we engage in every single day. The systems of policies, the the systems of, of honestly, the justice system, the the systems of education, the systems of healthcare. These are all different designs. And at Equine Green, you all are about supporting big, bold ideas and innovation. And these social entrepreneurs are designers. They are creators of experiences. They are creators of, of challenging, in many cases, the status quo uh, and challenging systems of oppression. And so we have to also recognize that the systems of oppression, inequality, and inequity are by design, but that also means that they can be redesigned. And so I've been actively working to build a movement of what we're calling Redesigners for Justice and really challenging us to not just passively, again, be consumers, but be producers 
aka designers of outcomes uh, that will provide um, better life experiences, opportunities for joy, opportunity for liberation for everyone and not just folks that have been historically centralized. I'm writing down this joy and liberation. Um, so let's talk about the the supremacy of design, right? Whether that's that's white supremacy or masculine supremacy, right? There's always an invisible who, right? When we get into a car, mm-hmm. right? That car was designed for a user. When we put our seatbelt on, right? It was designed for a certain height. When we sit in a chair, right? When we read a book, when we go through the criminal justice system, right? It's designed for a whom and it's designed towards an end. How do you think about dismantling that? Mm hmm. Yeah, I've been definitely thinking a lot more around divestment <laughs> lately than anything else, um, because, you know, there there is this tension where, you know, some folks are, are like, why try to change from within? Because ultimately, the longer you've been seeped in the culture, you tend to uphold a lot of those standards, even unintentionally. Um, and then some folks are like, let's be from outside of the system and dismantle and create a new Uh, And I will say I'm probably of the yes and um, brand, Uh, even with the work that we do, you know, I I think about not only how do we do bottom up, but how do we have the bottom up and the top down meet in the middle to collaboratively work together. Um, And it's the same when it comes to dismantling the systems. We need folks that are internal to or aka entrepreneurs um, to do the work to be those internal agitators. We need the folks outside of the system to be entrepreneurs and create something anew with that challenges the status quo. But then I also think we need those community organizers, which I don't think get a lot of um, enough recognition of the impact they have on our society to hold both accountable. Uh, And it sucks that they have to spend their time holding these groups accountable. Uh, And when you think about supremacy tenants or white supremacy tenants, a lot of these things have been seeped into our mindset so much that we don't even know that we're upholding it. Like perfectionism is another one. Perfect according to whom? Who who gets to actually define that? Or, yeah, like avoidance of conflict or quantity over quality like we see this in the philanthropy space you know they define impact as quantity but not really depth of quality um which is what a lot of social justice and organizing groups focus on they focus on that depth they focus on that impact at a hyper local scale uh, but yet the most of the groups we see funded are the ones that are could say i've reached a hundred thousand people um but you can't really see what the quality of that reach has been uh, so I think there's a lot of things to kind of unpack and grapple with there. I'm not allowed to snap in podcasts, so just know I'm snapping. <laughs> My name is Eric Dawson, and this is On Course. I'm speaking with Antoinette Carroll, founder, president, and CEO of Creative Reaction Lab. We'll be back with more after a short break. On Course is produced by Echoing Green. For more than 30 years, Echoing Green has been on the front lines of solving the world's biggest problems. We find emerging leaders with the best ideas for social innovation as early as possible and set them on a path to lifelong impact. Our community of almost 1,000 social innovators includes past fellows like First Lady Michelle Obama, major public figures like Van Jones, 
and the founders of organizations like Teach for America and One Acre Fund. Built and refined over 30 years, our process discovers tomorrow's leaders today. Join us as we support a new generation of social impact leaders. Learn more at echoinggreen.org. Welcome back. I'm Eric Dawson, and this is On Course, the podcast from Echoing Green. Today, I'm speaking with Antoinette Carroll, founder, president, and CEO of Creative Reaction Lab. So Antoinette, talk to me about the design of Creative Reaction Lab. What what inspired you to launch this work, and, and, and what design principles sit beneath it? When I was creating Creative Reaction Lab, I had no intention of it actually becoming its own organization. Originally, it was a 24-hour, in a sense, design challenge uh, looking at St. Louis's racial divide, in particular in response to the uprising in Ferguson. My family and I had just moved out of Ferguson six months prior, and so it was something that was very personal for me. And also, I was working as head of communications at a diversity inclusion organization, and I saw this this uh, silo segmented approach to addressing the division in St. Louis, which by nature literally is like you're addressing division with division. It just didn't make sense to me. Um, And also I saw this um, exploitation of power uh, in the community that wasn't really centering folks with the living knowledge and living expertise. And so Creative Reaction Lab was a space where I brought together some activists, some creative practitioners, some technologists, and said, what would you want to do uh, to address St. Louis's racial divide? And they pitched over 60 ideas, worked on five throughout the night, and all five were launched within St. Louis within a year. And some of them went on for several years and ranged from civic engagement tech tools to public art engagement to um, curriculum um, and uh, workshops uh, with um, students as well as uh, police officers. And so um, it was, in a sense, this catalyst of uh, community voice and community ownership, and also, again, creative problem solving and this idea of possibility. And we then started to receive a lot of interest from folks from across the country saying, how did you do what you did? Which for me, I'm going to be honest, I was building that plane as it was going, like literally (laughs) hour 16, still typing up the agenda of what we're going to do in the next five hours. Like it was It was one of those moments where it wasn't about the planning. It was about the experience. And um, I learned that year, it was 2014, that the idea of follow through was probably more key uh, than anything else. And so that led to Creative Reaction Lab ultimately becoming its own institution in 2016, a 501c3 in 2017. And uh, we've just been deepening our work, not only in St. Louis, but then across the country when it comes to youth work, as well as across the globe when it comes to the framework that we pioneered called equity-centered community design. Antoinette, you and I uh, share a hometown in St. Louis. It's where I was born uh, and spent my my child my early childhood. What does it mean? You know, d- design is connected to space and place. What does it mean that you are a designer and entrepreneur in St. Louis, in the middle of the country? 
I will say there's a lot of intentionality there. Um, there's been times in which folks have said, hey, would you be willing to move to Oakland or will you be moving to come, willing to come to New York? And I'm intentionally keeping Creative Reaction Lab headquartered in St. Louis. One, because that's how we started. It started around the uprising in Ferguson and across St. Louis to leave once we receive more recognition or more funding, I think it's part of the problem uh, that we have. Uh, also, there's a lot of strength and power uh, in grassroots organizing here in St. Louis. Uh, there's amazing artivists. Uh, there's folks like Kayla Reed that's doing amazing things with the St. Louis Action, um, or Action St. Louis, excuse me. Um, there's there's also a lot of philanthropy here in St. Louis, not at this level of, <laughs> let's be clear, not at the level of like the... New York or San Francisco, but more individual donors. Um, I think there's a lot of individual giving um, here. And honestly, if you, like our work many times is us pushing people to look in their own backyards, opposed to always trying to have savior complexity and going into other communities. One of your innovations is understanding the unique role that young people play as designers Talk to us about what you've learned about the unique role that young people play and how that has impacted what you've designed in terms of curriculum and experiences. Mm -hmm. I believe that youth have been and still are the architects of change in our society. A lot of innovation that we've seen actually have come from young folks. And I think a lot of us don't like to give them recognition it bothers me when I hear people say the children are our future as if they're not able to do things now. <laughs> and uh, we usually say um, uh, helping or supporting uh, tomorrow's leaders of equity today, like literally giving them that space to to create these micro interventions through their lens and recognizing that this spark, this moment could lead to systemic change over time. So in a sense, our work is is more of a long haul work. It's not just, um, hey, let's work with some mayors to address racial equity, because guess what? That's term limit based. That's not really looking at it at the systemic level. Like we're we're dealing with centuries of oppression here. Um, this is not, you know, something that will be dismantled by only working with folks in more quote unquote traditional forms of power. We need to shift mindsets earlier, earlier, but not just in this consciousness raising approach, which I think is a key part, but then also how do we provide a space for cultural healing, provide a space for, for collective mobilization, provide a space for access to traditional power and resources to allow them to build their own capacity addressing, in our case, racial and health inequities through their lens and through their lived experience. Um, and so it, it really is acknowledging that Honestly, they are the leaders that we need and the adults just need to get out of the way. <laughs> and we need to really think through how do we leverage our power and access to support them to where to ultimately at the point where they then will have the power and access and then they will leverage it and then the cycle goes on and on. I think a lot of young folks are so used to being told that they're not enough. A lot of young folks are, are so used to being told that wait until you get to a certain age that they need to also see themselves in understanding that they actually have a huge roadmap of young youth led leadership. 
um, that they could follow and also expand and grow. Uh, with the uprising in Ferguson, that was actually led by a lot of young folks, but yet the people that benefited the most were folks that were in more traditional forms of power. People that received the press were the ones that were quote unquote already in traditional forms of power and many times not the young people. And we need to really start to reflect on how are we also erasing in the movement space? How are we erasing, not just in the movement space, but in all spaces where young folks are challenging us to be better and do better um, because they literally are global shapers in my mind. Like they have access to insights and to experiences that we didn't have growing up just because of the internet, just because of their extended network. And so why not leverage that and allow them to honestly lead? So bring me into your classroom and classroom may not even be the right word. What's the experience like for a young person in your program? Oh, that is a great question. I will say the experience of young folks in our program is shocking for a lot of them because they're not used to so much autonomy. Um, They're not used to being asked the questions and not given the answers in some case. Um, I, there was a Ted talk that I saw a few years ago that said, uh, that was around creativity. Uh, and it was talking about how we need to stop asking the question of what is two plus two equal, but more so ask the question, what equals four and really seeing the different possibilities around that. And that's the similar approach that we take with our young leaders is that we say, what do you want to do? How do you want this to be developed? What research should you conduct? What does the intervention look like through your lens? And so in our programs, our youth come in and first build um, their consciousness around race, around ethnicity, around equity, around justice, liberation. They also reflect on their own identities, how they've been socialized, what's the impact of the environment, the education, educational narratives, um, their family, friends, and culture, media, how has that impacted how they view themselves and also how they view each other? Uh, And part of that is through the lens of leadership and part of that is through the lens of just being individuals surviving in this world. Uh, But then we also get them to the point where they then are thinking about and conducting actual community research on the ground, uh, understanding that they are part of the community and also that means they have access and trust already built where the community feel this connection with them and are willing to share beyond just the band-aid what they truly need uh, because proximity matters, right? Um, and then the the other part or the next stage of the program is where they actually launched their, they tested, they brainstormed, they test their interventions um, and then ultimately launch it and then make a decision on, will this be something that's going to be sustained or is it an exit strategy and making sure that we're not creating more trauma and harm uh, in the work that we're doing. And then what's our next step as being redesigners for justice. And so we've had some young leaders that went through our apprenticeship programs where one in particular, Quentin Ward, was named the executive director of a local nonprofit called St. Louis Metro Market at 23 years old and really started to deepen his work around food justice and what does that look like when addressing apartheid's 
uh, within um, the St. Louis Promise Zone. And so really having them not just consider their work in the program, but also what is my path and what is my equity journey beyond this program and recognizing that Creative Reaction Lab will support them in all of that. That's Antoinette Carroll, an equity designer, international speaker, and founder of Creative Reaction Lab. We'll be back with more after a short break. On Course is presented as part of the Inclusive Leadership Initiative. With support from the City Foundation, Echoing Green launched the Inclusive Leadership Initiative to expand its support of leaders that represent and work with communities of color. Together, Echoing Green and the City Foundation are supporting the next generation of leaders who are helping create economic and social opportunities for young women and men of color across the United States. Welcome back. I'm Eric Dawson, and this is On Course, the podcast from Echoing Green. I'm speaking to Antoinette Carroll, founder, president, and CEO of Creative Reaction Lab. Share a success. Like, what's something you're just mad proud of that you all have done? I'm mad proud of everything. I am proud of my team. I am proud of the recent cohort of the community design apprentices that was able to launch an intervention in the middle of an actual pandemic. Um, I am proud of the current Artwork for Equity campaign that we have going, looking at um, historical and contemporary forms of voter suppression that um, Black, Latinx, and Indigenous communities have had to overcome and continue to navigate and also the art that they're creating around that. So I, I'm proud. I'm a person that I measure my success off one person. If I see, and, and when we've had our apprentices or some of the young leaders come and say, I get it now, or I feel like I actually can do X, Y, and Z, that to me, that's success in my mind. It's not about the numbers. It's about that that deepened impact and that building up of their their confidence, capacity, and power to actually create change. We're in the middle of a global pandemic right now. How has COVID-19, the economic turmoil, the racial uprisings impacted the way in which you do your work in 2020? So essentially all three pandemics at one time, right? <laughs> um, you know, if you would have asked me this back in March, I would have said that, you know, COVID has significantly impacted us as an organization. Uh, we lost a lot of our clients. And of course, because of our work on the ground in the community, um, particularly we were looking at limited healthy food access. It was exacerbated because of COVID. Um, there was a lot of things that we internally had to navigate on where can we help and recognizing that we can't do everything. Um, and that led to us creating the Youth Creative Leadership Fund, where we provided micro grants to Black and Latinx youth across the country. Uh, but then the continual anti-Blackness police violence had been happening uh, or started receiving press again um, across the country, which then led to everyone having a reemerged interest in racial justice and racial equity, which then led to us having a lot of support, a lot of, can you work with us? Um, and I'm really at this point of really pushing our clients and the groups that we work with uh, to not just be performative, to not just show up in this moment and then feel that they can leave. And again, trying to hold them accountable to um, the fact that 
anti-blackness has been happening for a very long time. Um, when we talk about, like I heard someone say, the reemergence of the Black Lives Matter movement, they never stopped. You know, like <laughs> that work was still continuing. It's just that we have media showing it. And so um, at our in our company, we recognize that our work is long haul. We, we recognize that it didn't stop uh, when the media went away. And even now, that's the same approach that we're taking, that it's not going to stop. Uh, and it's because fighting for racial equity is a lifelong journey. It is not something that ends once the checks go away. So this last section, I'm, I'm going to ask you five fast questions. And I just want you to answer with the first thing that, that comes into your mind. Are you ready? <laughs> we'll see how this goes. <laughs> Who's your favorite designer? Oh, <laughs> favorite designer. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Uh, favorite designer, Sylvia Harris. She did a lot of work around civic design uh, and also um, how we make the census and everything more inclusive. If you could create one new product or experience in the world, what would that be? Honestly, I would create an experience where all of us were able to define individual liberation for ourselves as well as collective liberation, because I feel like we really don't have spaces to do that. Who inspires you? My grandmother. What's a lesson that you've had to learn the hard way? (laughs) I had to learn that while there's no such thing as mm, work-life balance in my life, if it wasn't for my family, none of this would be worth it. And so some of us, um, for folks that are listening to the podcast, um, we may be focusing so much on work, but know at the end of the day that there should be a purpose connected to it. And also don't forget the folks that um, are the reason why you're doing what you're doing. When your time on this earth is done, how do you want to be remembered? You know what? I will say, um, I want to be remembered like Beyonce's song, I Was Here. That is literally my personal anthem. Um, Whatever the impact I make in life, I I just hope that there is an element of legacy there because in the Black and uh, African-American community in particular, a lot of us don't know our ancestry. A lot of us don't know our legacies, which is something I personally have been grappling with in my life. And so I'm hopeful that I'm helping I hope find a way to kind of keep those histories and those legacies alive, even my own. For those listening who are inspired and want to learn more about your work, what can they do? You can go to creativereactionlab.com. The, our process of equity center community design, we actually open source that in 2017. And so if you go to our website, you can download our field guide for free and think about how you can apply it to your work in gender equity or equity for folks uh, that are LGBTQIA plus equity for neurodiverse individuals, uh, because we recognize that this work is collective. We're not going to be able to do everything. And so how do we support everyone in this journey uh, and dismantling systems of oppression. Antoinette, uh, it was such a pleasure to, to sit down with you today. I, I want to leave just with a couple thoughts that, that you've, you've given me to think about. The first is that design is an invisible disruptor. Hmm. Design is an invisible disruptor. The second is the importance, and I would say the, the, the integration of joy and liberation. 
right? Paulo Freire, who um, is a Brazilian education um, activist, talked about when in the struggle, if we struggle without hope, our struggle suicidal, mm, mm-hmm. right? That in our work for justice, we need joy. We need yes. art. We need music. We need community. You are a redesigner for justice, uh, Antoine. And I want to leave with this, this idea of, of Eleanor Roosevelt's where she once said that the future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams, Hmm. right? The future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. And she went on to say, think about what would make you happy in the near future. Everybody is allowed to dream, make your dreams come true and live them. That is the invitation that you're offering to young people. And in turn, young people are challenging that notion of who a designer is. Mm -hmm. And to me, that is the most radical and therefore the most important thing that we need to do right now is change the narrative of who gets to create and who's seen as a creator. Thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for being the human that you are. And good luck with what comes next. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. To learn more about Echoing Green, go to echoinggreen.org. And don't miss any of our episodes. Subscribe where you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating so other listeners can find us. I'm Eric Dawson. Stay on course.